Good morning to you all. I realize as Paul was introducing me that uh, most of you I don't know. I haven't been a part of the church here for about 50 years. <laughs> but I did grow up in this congregation when it was still at Hawksville and uh, have been connected ever since. In fact, <clears throat> the church here has... Uh, supported my wife Heather and I when we were missionaries in Ecuador and Colombia, uh, when we were pastoring a church in Waterloo for many years, and also for the years that we have served with Vision Ministries Canada, which uh, facilitates church planting. Uh, we've been involved in the planting of more than 130 churches in Canada since 1992 and uh, are continuing to do that even in the middle of COVID. New churches are continuing to be planted and started. And so the gospel is alive and well in Canada. And so it's uh, important for us to realize that that impulse of taking the gospel towards two people who don't know it is something that is alive and well. Uh, I'm involved a lot in, have been now for many years with new Canadians who are reaching out to their uh, immediate communities and have had a lot to do with them. They are alive to God. And uh, so last week I was speaking to a Persian or an Iranian congregation in Toronto. And all week long I've been talking to Africans and Asians and who are starting churches uh, in our country. They pray and believe that they have come. One of them often will pray, Good morning, Holy Spirit. Good morning, Heavenly Father. Thank you for this beautiful land of Canada where we have such freedom. So as I listen to them, and they have come from places where they did not have freedom, where they have known what it is to suffer. Uh, they are so glad to be here, and it's always a reminder to me because I've taken this for granted my whole life. Uh, not to have to worry about whether it's permissible or not for us to gather in a place like this. The Ethiopians remember that for 30 years, they were under communism and not permitted to gather. And at the end of that time, the church had mushroomed unbelievably. And one of them said to me that he was in high school at the time. And he said, we, were, we knew this was coming. And we put our people into groups of five. And those groups of five, at the end of 30 years, we were like 2% at the beginning and like 24% today of the population. And so it's just a massive thing that has happened today. There's a huge war going on there. Uh, they are very concerned about it. So uh, just introducing myself for those of you who don't know me and for you old timers who I know very well. <laughs> so, uh, this past year during COVID, I wrote a book. I have attempted this quite a few times in the past, but COVID gave me time. And uh, so this is the story of my personal life, 
my Heather and our ministry life, and I called it Doing It Afraid because I felt that so many of us, particularly church leaders, are much more willing to do ministry inside the walls of our church than outside of it. For us to carry the gospel to people beyond our walls is something that uh, I'm concerned that we're not doing enough. Fear is a factor for every Christian leader. I'm no exception. I want to be the person Jesus calls me to be. I want to do what he calls me to do. And I would do it if I did not feel so afraid or inadequate. I have had to learn to do it afraid. And I wrote this and entitled it particularly because I knew that quite a few people who are my peers don't think that I'm afraid. But I have always done it afraid. Always felt inadequate. Always having to draw strength from the God who calls us to walk with him. So this is my story. It's a very frank and honest story of my life and Heather's life. There's a chapter in it about Heather written with her permission and uh, a story about the loss of our son, the very uh, frank story about our loss of him. But more than anything else, it's the story, and I talk about growing up at Hawksville, and I call it a scary little church. <laughs> because it was a church where my parents and all of the adults that I knew, they were the same people on Monday as they were on Sunday. And I remember as a young person wishing they had been a little more hypocritical because it would have given me reason for more leeway. And, uh, but because they were who they were, they were an incredible example to me. And uh, so... It's the story of, of my ministry life, but also the story of God meeting us again and again. So this is available this morning on the little table at the back outside. It's $20. So if you like one, you can pick one up here this morning. Oh, my computer has gone to sleep. We are here at Wallenstein going through the book of Ezra. This is a series called Rebuild. And it's called Rebuild because the people of Israel were coming back from a time of captivity. And they were rebuilding their uh, city of Jerusalem. It was a mess. Nehemiah described it this way. You see the trouble we are in. Jerusalem lies in ruins and its gates have been burned with fire. And it was just a pile of rubble. And Nehemiah talks about how he and a few with him went out at night to explore the walls just to see what kind of a mess it really was. It was difficult to maneuver uh, on horseback going through a place like that, but that's what they were coming home to. And uh, so this morning I want to look at four things. Reestablishing worship, which is what chapter 3 is all about, and the rhythms of worship for them, not really for us, but I want to talk about that, Celebration as worship, you know that Nehemiah says that the joy of the Lord is our strength, is that when we are glad together, there is strength. And we're going to touch on that this morning. And then we're going to speak about the heart of worship. It's not just about altars and temples, but it's about human hearts. And so those are the four things we're going to deal with this morning. So what's been going on? Well, uh, Israel had been deported, if you can imagine. 
like a whole country being deported. It's like being, having Canada deported to Mexico. Can you imagine that? Uh, but that's what happens. These Israelites were deported to Babylon, the northern tribes to Assyria and the southern ones to Babylon. They had been deported to Babylon, enslaved and humiliated because of their appalling sin and their rejection of God. These were the people who saw the miracles uh, coming out of Egypt. These were the people who saw Mount Sinai and the tables of stone and all of that. And yet, years later, they drifted away and forgot. God had withdrawn his favor and protection from them. And as you read the Old Testament, sometimes you will wonder, is God making these bad things happen directly? Or is he just withholding his favor? and allowing bad things to happen to them. We could have several weeks of discussion about that. Uh, but now there are about 50,000 people who have returned. They all left walking. They came back walking. And here they are now, about 50,000 of them, and the, it looks something like this. They'd been away for about 70 years. There are actually three uh, groupings of people who returned to Jerusalem. The first group, are, uh, the leader was Zerubbabel, and I, I'm not even going to try this again. In the early service, I tried to get everybody to say Zerubbabel in unison. And I don't know if it was their masks or they're just a bad crowd at 9.15. But, uh, uh, <laughs> uh, so this is where we are. Zerubbabel has just come back, and he is beginning the rebuilding of the temple. And Haggai and Zechariah were the prophets at that time. Now, in our Old Testament, all the prophets are lumped together at the end of the Old Testament. But that's not really exactly where they belong because the historical books of the Old Testament from Genesis to Esther, these prophets lived during that time of history. But they're all lumped together at the end of our Bible. And uh, Haggai and Zechariah were living and prophesying during that very time that we're describing here this morning. 57 years pass, and another group comes with Ezra. And this time it's not about the temple being rebuilt, it's about the people being reformed. And so when you get to these chapters of Ezra, this is a very dynamic part of the book. Uh, and then about 12 years later, Nehemiah comes and the wall is rebuilt. So this is that section of the Bible uh, Ezra and Nehemiah and Esther, that's, those are the, uh, the books of the Bible that are being described here. And, uh, and Malachi was a prophet. The very last book of the Old Testament was a prophet during that time of the wall being rebuilt. And then about 400 years pass uh, before Jesus arrives. So that just, just gives us a little glimpse of how it all fits together. They came back and one of the first things they began to do is to establish worship or to reestablish it. And they moved pretty quickly to do it. We're going to read from Ezra chapter 3. When the seventh month came, and the seventh month is about September, October for us. When the seventh month came and the Israelites settled in their towns, the people assembled as one man in Jerusalem. Then Jeshua, the son of Josedek, and his fellow priests, and Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, and his associates began to build the altar of God of Israel, to sacrifice burnt offerings on it in accordance with what is written in the law of Moses, the man of God. 
Despite their fear of the peoples around them, they built the altar on its foundation and sacrificed burnt offerings on it to the Lord, both morning and evening sacrifices. So this happens pretty quickly. They decide that we need to uh, right away get started and reestablish uh, worship. It's probably within the first year of their return, so they're getting their houses fixed and roofs over their head and getting those things established. And then it says that um, they gathered in to Jerusalem as one man. And I've always loved this phrase. Can you imagine that if this group rose, actually, let's practice. <laughs> Would you stand? Uh, th this wasn't very good. Just sit down again. <laughs> now, would you rise as one man or one woman, stand up together? Yes. Thank you. You can be seated. So they gathered together as one man, and there's this tremendous sense of unity that they have come back, their home, and it's time to rebuild the temple. And the first part of that is the altar. They need to rebuild it, and they gather as one man and it's in spite of the fear of the people around because what had happened is that the land wasn't exactly empty. It had been repopulated because when the, when the northern ten tribes were taken captive, they said, well, they've got all this empty land now. And there were wild animals. It became kind of a crazy place. And so they decided, the Assyrians decided to send back. They had left a few people there who kind of weren't worth deporting. And they brought in some neighborhood, neighboring peoples and got them to resettle there. And then there's an unusual story in Second Chronicles where it says that because of the wild animals, people were afraid to live here. So they said, let's bring some scribes, some of the religious leaders from Judah, let's bring them back and teach these people how to worship the God of this land because the God of this land isn't very happy. And, uh, and that's why these wild animals are driving everybody crazy. So now you've got this mixture of people who were living there, not all that happy about the 50,000 people who were showing up to rebuild their towns and Jerusalem. Those are the people who were scattered around the country. And it says here, in spite of the fear of the people around them, and you're going to find more about this next Sunday, uh, they, they are going to show up again. And so here they are, uh, they are establishing worship. The priests had rebuilt the altar in accordance with the law and accordance with Moses, the man of God. And uh, I never realized how significant this was uh, since I've been going to Africa on these trips in the last 10 years. Uh, they are more generous in the use of this term than we are here. So they would refer to me as the man of God. And I'm thinking... Are they talking about me? <laughs> uh, the man of God. It's used of Moses and Elijah and key figures in the Old Testament. And here they are. They are establishing, reestablishing worship. They're building this altar. And, uh, and there are certain rhythms of worship. For us, we may say that we have these rhythms of worship where we have small group during the week. We have services on Sunday. We may have our own Bible readings and quiet times in our family. In fact, when I was growing up, this was the way it was in my family. 
uh, after breakfast, we all read, always read a chapter of the Bible. And all of us kids, and there were 10 of us, uh, uh, never all at home as far as I could remember, but, uh, but we would read, each of us, a verse of the chapter, all the, and we didn't miss any. So even those kind of embarrassing uh, passages in the Bible, we read them through verse by verse. And when we finished the chapter, we would all get on our knees and dad prayed. That was a regular rhythm of worship. For them, it was quite different. For them, it's about the tabernacle. And so I'm going to read from verses 4 to 6. Then in accordance with what is written, they celebrated the Feast of Tabernacles, which was a big deal, by the way. This was, they had just come back and they are now beginning to reestablish their worship. The Feast of Tabernacles, which was always a big event for the whole nation. It was one of those three pilgrimage feasts where everybody went to Jerusalem. So this was a, a very big event. And it says here that... Um, uh, and they off, offered the required number of burnt offerings prescribed for each day, because it was a seven-day event. After that, they presented the regular burnt offerings, the new moon sacrifices, and the sacrifices for all the appointed sacred feasts of the Lord, as well as those brought as freewill offerings to the Lord. On the first day of the seventh month, they began to offer burnt offerings to the Lord, though the foundation of the Lord's temple had not yet been laid. And so, when you look at this, uh, this tabernacle or the temple in the Old Testament had three parts. This is the outer court. And it was this altar of burnt offering that they were rebuilding here. And, you know, the, even though the temple that Solomon had built, this great and glorious temple had been demolished, they cleared a rubble away and they found that it, where the original altar would have been, and they rebuilt the altar right there. And so that was the first thing to do was to rebuild the altar because that was foundational to everything else because in the Old Testament, there are these sacrifices that were being offered. Seems strange to us, but the offering of animals, lambs, rams, bulls, and so on was a regular occurrence. And so the, uh, without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins, it says in the New Testament. So these animals were offered as sacrifices as an atonement for the people. Uh, cleansing for the people because this describes a God who is holy and a God who is merciful. The altar describes his mercy because these, he accepted substitution. These animals were sacrificed in the place of people and God is showing his mercy there. In the holy place and the most holy place is where the presence of God is. That's where the Ten Commandments are there. So the holiness of God and the mercy of God are displayed in vivid terms in this form of worship. This sacrificial system finds its fulfillment in the sacrifice of Jesus, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So in the New Testament, you have Jesus coming and John the Baptist says, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He's remembering all of this Old Testament form of worship and he's saying, now, this is the Lamb of God. Not lambs and animals and so on, but God coming himself. He becoming the Lamb of God. And this is why we worship. We say, this is the way God has loved us. 
He has come near. He has sacrificed himself for us. And we are called to wake up and to realize that this was done out of his incredible mercy and compassion for people like us. And we say, really? Well, if that's true, then how do I respond? What do I do? And so we are, we are loving him back because he first loved us. So they not only had the sacrificial system, but they had a whole calendar of events so that the Jewish year was different from ours. They had Sabbaths, they had annual feasts that looked kind of like this. So in the, in the fall, which is the very time of the year that we're talking about here in Ezra chapter 3, we have the Feast of Tabernacles. And this is when they are remembering. All the people of Israel are remembering that there was a time when they traveled through the wilderness and they lived in these temporary shelters. And here they are called every year to remember this. And they put up these little booths and these little lean-tos with uh, uh, poles and branches and leaves. And it's kind of like everybody camping outside for a week with special sacrifices and so on every day. So this was a big event that is taking place right here. The Day of Atonement takes here to place here, the, trump, the Feast of Trumpets. And then the, these are the spring festivals. And three times a year, all of the men had to make a pilgrimage to Jerusalem to celebrate those special pilgrimage festivals. So here they are. They're reestablishing their worship. They're doing it right at the beginning of this Feast of Tabernacles. It wasn't only the calendar they had. When we talk about rhythms of worship for the Old Testament, there were daily reminders. There were laws about everything. Laws about diet, and what you could eat and what you could not eat and how it should be cooked or not cooked. There were laws about clothing. Like some of you, like not really dressed properly here this morning, <laughs> according to those Jewish laws. Uh, work, when you could work and how much you could work, everything was covered. Cleanliness, washing, how you washed your hands and, and how you washed your hands ceremonially. And years later, uh, the disciples of Jesus got in trouble over this because the Pharisees said to Jesus, what are your disciples are not? They're not regarding the traditions of the elders. They're not washing their hands ceremonially. So there was a big debate about this. So these laws about cleanliness and health, oh my goodness, if you had a red spot and a red spot had a white spot inside of it and all these kind of things uh, were all uh, described in the Old Testament law. Family. So when we talk about the rhythms of worship, they were not talking about Sunday morning. They were not talking about midweek groups. They were not talking about personal Bible study and so on. All of this was a part of their life and they're re-establishing the rhythms uh, of their worship. Worship as celebration. When they laid the foundations, they didn't wait until the temple was done. Oh no. They just had the foundation done, and they said, this is a time to celebrate. <laughs> Let's not wait. And it's just interesting to me that they were so ready and quick to celebrate. I think there's some lessons in this for us. There's strength in celebration, in being glad. You know, some of us are just kind of saying, well, you know, we just kind of are kind of ho-hum people. We don't really do that kind of thing. But wouldn't it be something if 
we're ever finished with COVID, wouldn't it be nice if we could have a huge celebration that we are together again? We are going to sing out loud. And people will not hear us through muffled tones. Wouldn't that be a good thing? To celebrate and be glad because, as Nehemiah said, the joy of the Lord is your strength. It's a good thing to do this. So in 7 to 9, it tells us about the materials that got collected and the construction that takes place. And then the celebration itself is described in verses 10 to 13. And there are priests there. There are vestments there, certain ways to be clothed, and instruments And they were singing, and maybe they sang Psalm 136. You know that psalm which says, The Lord is good, for his mercy endureth forever, and his mercy endureth forever is after every verse throughout the whole chapter. It may be that that's the psalm that they sang together. And there was shouting. Now, I know perfectly well. We don't shout, do we? Uh, in, in October of last year, uh, Doug Loveday and I went to Kenya, and uh, we had made a partnership agreement with an organization called Impact Hope to drill a well in a very dry part of the country. So Impact Hope went over to Kenya. They also made a, an agreement with Vision Ministries Kenya to do this, and The year before, they had drilled 165 meters and came up with no water. Dust. And so this past year in September, they uh, swallowed hard and raised more money and went back to try again at a different spot. This time we said, okay, let's talk to the really smart people, find out where the water is. And, uh, And they went drilling down and they went down 265 meters before they got water. That's a long way. I did say 265 meters, not feet. And um, so they were, when they hit water, <laughs> they celebrated and shouted. They, uh, you know, even the white guy can shout a little. <laughs> In Mathailand, you can see animals are even more happy as the water. They are taking the water today. They are... And they are very, very happy. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You can see how the the community are excited and yelling. It looks like nobody Bring lives the there. Cows are coming. Wow, amazing. Hallelujah. Yeah. And the water is coming right from the bowl. He says even the animal is saying hallelujah. Wow. So about 5,000 animals came on one day. Yes, they're coming. And so these Maasai herders who were taking their animals like great distances to find water suddenly are bringing their animals to this prayer center. This is a place where people come to pray for a week or two weeks or three days. They do that. 
And uh, so here they are, and the prayer center was called the well. But of course, they never had a well until September. And this was just uh, the week before last, where they raised money for a pump and solar panels and storage tanks. They were celebrating. They didn't wait for Sunday morning. It was absolutely beautiful. I don't think I've ever experienced such a heartwarming thing as this because last spring, we were to be going there in October for a conference. And last June, I sent to Ishmael, who we work with there, five possible themes for our conference. And wouldn't you know, he chose the one that I didn't like the one that I liked the least. <laughs> and it was from Malachi, which says, Try me. Put me to the test, says the Lord your God. See if I won't up, open up the windows of heaven and pour out a blessing on you that you won't be able to contain. And I thought to myself, Oh, Lord, these Africans are going to drive us crazy. They're going to have great expectations about blessings that they won't be able to contain. And I know how poor they are. So we were kind of had this in our mind, June, July, August, September. And September, Doug, who went with me, said, um, I'm still not sure what to say about some of this. And what had happened that same weekend was when they hit water. And we weren't aware of it. We weren't actually aware of all that was happening over there. But we discovered that Ishmael had been afraid because the people drilling the well said, they're quitting. They're leaving. They're, at the end of today, they're leaving. And he said, you can't go. And he said, he went out and he prayed out in the dark. And it gets dark out there. And uh, he was praying and he said, God, you can't, you can't do this to us. He said, how are we going to tell these people that you are the God who provides if we don't even, can't even find water? He was kind of afraid the well-drilling crew was going to leave in the middle of the night, and he was sleeping outside and walking in the dark. And he said, God, defend your name. And the next morning, I got two little pieces of video. The one showed them praying beside the drilling rig. And the second one, there was water. And that was in September, and then just two weeks ago, they were able to install the pump and everything else, and the animals were saying, Hallelujah. <laughs> the heart of worship. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart. Deuteronomy 6.5. All the way through the Old Testament, you can't help but see a kind of heart drift. Again and again, the people of God seem to drift away and forget and say, well, if God is really there, you know, we're not sure. And, uh, and they began to go through the motions, but their heart really wasn't in it over and over again. 
It's easy to be, look like a worshiper on the outside, but not be one on the inside. So even here this morning, some of us are probably like that. We might look like worshipers because we're here like everybody else, but on the inside, well, that's not actually what's happening. It's God's biggest complaint about his people all the way through the Old Testament. In Isaiah, it says that uh, even an ox or an ass knows its master, but my people do not know me. They honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. It's also his concern about New Testament believers that their hearts might drift. The Apostle Paul said in 2 Corinthians that I am concerned for you because I have betrothed you. I have introduced you to a bridegroom. And I am concerned that your love may not be what I was expecting. What causes it? Well, it's discouragement with real life. You know, when you're a teenager, you're just exploring things and discovering things and hoping to explore things that mom and dad don't really want you to do and so on. And uh, so you don't imagine that life could be full of trouble and grief of all kinds. You, you don't know that yet, usually. It's discouragement with real life, with your job. Your job is nothing. My first job was at McKee Brothers in Elmira. And I discovered a number of months in that I was getting up at 6.30 in the morning in the winter, and it was dark and cold and driving off to a job that I didn't really like. It's not that much fun. Discouragement with real life, maybe in your family or in your marriage or with your kids or with your money, who knows, all kinds of things. Things start to go wrong. And you begin to wonder, is this true for anybody else? Doubts about whether my faith is real, like other people seem to get answers to prayer, but I, like, what about me? And, uh, and maybe begin to wonder, whether the whole thing is true after all. Now, does this only happen to weird people or occasional people? No, this happens to most people. Have questions, but one of the problems is when we come together like this, we don't normally come together to celebrate people's unanswered questions. We normally get together to elevate faith and there's power in the blood and uh, uh, everything is going to go well. But then you go home on Sunday afternoon, it's actually not well. So I think those Israelites were not that much different than us. They were experiencing discouragements and doubts. You know, the reality is that following Jesus on earth is rewarding, but it's also unpredictable. It's an unpredictable journey of joys disturbing questions and deep disappointments. So uh, I tell the story in this book about the death of our son. Uh, it's about six years ago now. <clears throat> and uh, we prayed and other people prayed for 20 years. 
and he unexpectedly died. And so suddenly, what are the answers to those questions that we've actually been harboring for quite a long time? What are the answers now? It's also this Christian life is a life in which we keep on learning. It's a journey. We are walking with Jesus, walking with him, Emmanuel, God with us. It's a lifetime of learning to discover again and again nourishment from the bread of life. Not something you say, oh, I already heard that. No, no. It's when we are reading this again and again, and in our times of questions and troubles, we discover in these books, oh, there's actually people even in the Bible who had questions like us, big ones. (laughs) And how did God deal with them? And so we are learning, and we are also listening to the prompting of the Holy Spirit, because Jesus said, I'm not going to leave you alone. The Holy Spirit is going to come, and this is a big thing. And you need to listen to his voice, listen to his nudgings, learning to trust him and obey him. That's all a part of this. Even though you won't know the answers at times, it's fellowship with other people. You know, sometimes when we talk with other people about our questions, we discover that they don't have that question, and they wonder, like, I don't have that problem. And we feel like, I wish we hadn't asked. So on a day like today, there's no question in my mind that we will be here, some of us at a time of great faith and others at a time of zero faith. When we come here together, it's important for us to say that it's all right to have questions. It's all right to wonder why. And you should be asking questions uh, about things that you don't understand because actually none of us understand these these things uh, fully or completely or even as well as we thought. The Bible talks about wrestling, rejoicing, fighting, doing it by faith, doing it afraid, enduring, suffering, thankfulness. Even the Apostle Paul at the end of his life said, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. It's not like he was an old guy and old people, you know, just kind of coast along into heaven at the last few years of their life. It's it's not like that. Here's the Apostle Paul, the one that we learned so much from, and the one who God used in spite of his hardness of heart. And he speaks to us this morning. He doesn't say, I have had a nice journey. I went on a cruise ship. He doesn't say that. He said, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. He knew he was right about at the end of it. I have kept the faith. You don't have the sense that this was a cakewalk for him. And it's not likely to be for us either. It's important for us to, if we're going to reestablish worship, if we're going to establish rhythms of worship, if we are going to be a people who 
are able to celebrate when there are times to celebrate or even when there are not, that we are guarding our heart, that we are learning to walk with him all the way through our life. And I want to say to you today that if you have begun this journey, maybe some of you are not even sure whether you've started or not, but if you're at the beginning of it, there is great joy when I sit down with my wife under a big shade tree at our house. We look back and we say, our life has not been easy, but it has been rich. And I wish that for you to be able to say that in spite of everything that has happened, even because of it, that our life has become rich. Amen. The worship team.